0: If you're looking in your bulletin right now, you'll notice the title today for sermon is the Latin phrase "Verbum Domini manet in eternum," which means "The word of the Lord endures forever." This was the motto of the Lutheran Reformation, a confident expression of the enduring power and authority of God's word, and an expression, by the way, that was despised by the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation this motto wasn't just grabbed out of the air it was taken directly from our text and i hope you'll look carefully at your copy of god's word at first peter one you'll see where this comes from by the way if you've never been with us before and you're wondering what is it that they're doing here right now what we're engaged in is consecutive expository preaching our normal pattern although we deviate from it at times Our normal pattern is to preach through verse-by-verse, context-by-context, New Testament books on Sunday mornings, and on Lord's Day evenings we preach through Old Testament books. Tonight we'll be continuing in our study of the book of Joshua. Well, immediately after Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg as topics for debate, this motto that you see listed in your bulletin, Verbum, Domini, Manet, and eternum began to appear like graffiti all over Central Europe. It was written on walls in Roman Catholic towns. And it was usually the abbreviation, just the letters, V-D-M-A. Frederick the Wise was the prince of the region of Germany where Martin Luther lived and was so impacted by Luther's teaching that he had these letters, V-D-M-A, sewn onto the right sleeve of the court's official clothing. It was worn by princes and servants and soldiers. It was used on flags and banners and coins and clocks and uniforms as a symbol of Protestant Christianity. It was inscribed over the doorways of churches on foundation stones. There have even been War horses' helmets that have been found at archaeological digs that had VDMA across them. And this has long appeared, this statement, the word of the Lord endures forever, through Lutheran churches worldwide and remains an enduring motto of the Reformation to this day. Now, for several weeks, we've been listening to the Apostle Peter, who, along with John, was at the center of the apostolic ban but it was Peter who preached the first public sermon after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. It was Peter who was beaten and imprisoned for his bold proclamation of Jesus. When we think of Peter, we tend to think of Peter as verbal, forgetting at our own peril what a robust doctrine of the written word, scripture, Peter held and proclaimed. Today in our text, and I do hope you have your Bible open to 1 Peter 1, verses 23 through 25, we're going to see two simple, although they're not that simple, two clear points that Peter makes about the Bible. By the way, through his first and second epistle, Peter will sprinkle in, ever so often he'll pop up and remind the believer of the doctrine of scripture and how central it is. But today, Peter's going to make two basic assertions but they're profound. First of all, the Word is God's always instrument in regeneration. This has implications for our view of the Christian life, for missions, culture, and much more. The Word is God's instrument always in regeneration. And his second point he will make about our doctrine of scripture is the Word endures forever. This has cosmological and geopolitical implications as well. So this morning, we'll begin, because there is much more to follow, to unpack Peter and the other apostles' doctrine of Scripture. I'm going to ask you to work, to have your copy of God's Word open, to gird up your minds and to think with me God's thoughts after him. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. Almighty God, in your Word are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so open our eyes now that we may see the wonders of your being. Give us grace that we may clearly understand and choose the way of your wisdom, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. The first point that Peter is making is that uh, the role of the word is central in our regeneration, in our salvation. Look carefully at verse 23. Peter makes this statement that we've been born again, and then he has an interim clause, through the word of God. We've been born again through the word of God. This is descriptive of every Christian everywhere. Now, just so you can get a handle on what this phrase means, we've been born again. Keep one finger here and look back to John chapter 3, Peter's fellow apostle, John, his dear friend, perhaps his cousin. In John 3, Peter's fellow Apostle John, tells of the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus that happened by night. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 3, he describes this whole phenomena of regeneration or being born again. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again, Jesus says, is an absolute prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom of God. Why is it a necessity? Well, first of all, because man is flesh, fallen humanity, and men are dead in trespasses and sins. It's a necessity because man is blind and can't see the kingdom of God. In fact, men love darkness and hate the light. They are darkness and do the deeds of darkness. They belong to the kingdom of darkness. Because he's a natural man, the unregenerate man doesn't receive the things of the Holy Spirit. They're foolishness to him. Regeneration as well as a necessity because men are powerless. They cannot of their own strength enter the kingdom of God. What do they need? They need what every single person has ever needed. What your neighbor needs, what your kids need, what your mom needs, what your spouse needs, what your boss needs. They need to be born again, given a new heart. When I say regeneration is a necessity, I mean that it's an indispensable necessity. Not one soul will enter heaven who's not regenerated. It's a universal necessity. These words apply to men and women, black and white, old and young, poor and wealthy. It's an unchanging necessity. When you stare at these words in John 3, this was true in 28 AD when Jesus said them to Nicodemus, and it's equally true in 2023 in our hyper-advanced technocracy. It is an unchanging necessity. The manner of the new birth or regeneration or being born again is taught in John 3 verse 8. Look there what Jesus says to Peter's fellow apostle says in John 3 verse 8 where Jesus makes a comparison between the activity of the wind and the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now Sandy and I, I know you being South Carolinians, you think nothing of this, but yesterday Sandy and I were outside in the afternoon and We looked at each other with shock on our face because it's springtime and at this point in our lives for the first 20 years, this is why all women in Oklahoma have bad hair days all the time, the wind is usually blowing at about 45 miles an hour. And we were outside, sitting outside, listening to some music, and we were shocked because the wind was blowing about two miles an hour. We still don't know what to do when those kind of conditions happen. We're used to tornadoes. Sandy was telling me the other night that in Oklahoma County, in one night, there were over 50 tornadoes in one night in Oklahoma County. That's what our norm is. And so when Jesus starts talking about the wind here in John 3 verse 8 and makes a comparison between that and the activity of the Holy Spirit, we actually, ears kind of perk up and think we have something to to talk about and compare this to. You see, the, the comparison Jesus makes in John 3 verse 8 when he says, "...the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit." The, the analogy is the wind and the Holy Spirit are both sovereignly free in their action. The wind comes and goes without the consent or control of man. The wind blows where it wishes, just so the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He's free in his work of regeneration. No one can control it. You can't harness or regulate him or hinder him either. Sometimes the wind is imperceptible, scarcely moves a leaf. Other times the roar is deafening. And just so, in some cases, the Holy Spirit works so quietly that no one perceives. At other times, his his action is obvious to all. The ways of both the wind and the Holy Spirit are unpredictable because they're mysterious. You see two men and you suppose one is too hard to save and the other one looks like a good candidate for salvation. And the Lord saves the hardened man and bypasses the respectable man. The Lord is sovereign and free. He's the Holy Spirit's like the wind. Think of Saul, who turned into Paul, angry and murderous, killing Christians. And of all people, the Lord regenerates him. What a lousy candidate for salvation when that was the last thing Paul was seeking. The wind and the Holy Spirit are both irresistible in their work, in their power. In 1999, very close to my childhood home, I was on the phone with my mom and my mom was staring out her back window watching as a tornado, class 5 storm, dropped down on this end of Sooner Road and it went for 12 miles for 40 minutes. And it left nothing but shreds of wood in in its wake. It was an astounding and devastating thing and it reminded me again, no structure can withstand powerful winds And no sinner can withstand the Spirit's work of regeneration. That's the point of comparison. Both have efficacy. When such a wind blows, it leaves flattened buildings in its wake. And when the Holy Spirit blows, he leaves new creations in his wake. It's interesting that Jesus is the one who uses the analogy to describe regeneration here in John 3, verse 7. It's birth, born again. Stop and ask yourself, what did you contribute to your human birth? Nothing. You didn't choose to be conceived or born. You were totally passive. This is a, a perfectly fitting analogy because just as you were passive in your human birth, so are sinners totally passive in the new birth, in regeneration. Now, look back to our text in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter brings up this doctrine of regeneration, of being born again. Now, when we think about spiritual experience, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you've taken your own life and your own spiritual experience and put it under the microscope next to the Word of God, but think about your regeneration and how it fell out, the steps that happened. There are some things that happened before your regeneration, such as God chose you before the foundation of the world, we're told in Ephesians 1. And then Christ died for you, laying down his life as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for you. And then the Lord began to immediately work on you. According to John 6, he began to draw you. If he didn't, you wouldn't be saved. He began to effectually call you. And then comes that great work of regeneration. Where the Lord takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. He makes a dead man alive. Now, I want you to notice the place that the scriptures play in all this. Look at our text now. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Peter says, you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God. Now, do you notice what Peter is saying? He's saying every time that God regenerates somebody, it's always in the in the area, in the context, through the use of the word of God. When we are evangelizing or instructing, our only power and authority, our only efficacy, is the proclamation of the Bible alone. That's why Paul says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If Rome or anyone else proclaims new revelations or traditions or papal decrees, there is no saving power in these words. Only the scripture holding out the promises of salvation in Christ alone can save. Now study that phrase in verse 23. Notice the link. We've been born again. Yes, it's the sovereign regenerating work of God. But notice the instrument through the word of God. God is always pleased to use the Bible when he's regenerating men. And so we, we pointed out those things that happened before regeneration. God chooses you. Christ dies for you. God begins to draw you. Then you you come under the sound of the hearing of the word of God. And God is pleased to work alongside that and change your heart. But then some things happen after regeneration as well. The newly awakened man believes the gospel. He has the ability to do so now. Regeneration is the beginning of spiritual life. It begins union with Christ. Only after regeneration are we in Christ, now having a a vine and branch relationship with Jesus, with life flowing from Christ to you. Now the, the regenerate man, before he hated righteousness, now he loves it. He has a burning desire to mortify sin and put on righteousness. Paul says that regeneration, being born again, is so transformative that it changed people in the church of Christ, the church of Corinth, who'd been practicing homosexuals. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or homosexuals or sodomites. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. And then Paul begins to speak of the transforming work, the regenerating work of God. But notice what Peter tells us in terms of spiritual experience. That regeneration miracle always comes alongside using the word of God. And so the first point that Peter is making, look at it carefully in verse 23, is he wants to say, when you think of your salvation... When you think of your regeneration, having been sovereignly born again, the word of God was involved. It doesn't happen apart from the scriptures. But then the second point that Peter wants to make about the word of God is he wants to make the point that the word of God endures forever. And he does so if you look at verse 24 and 25 He makes a profound assertion about the scriptures, and he does something that uh, I, I have to point out to you. He does so by quoting the Old Testament scriptures, especially Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 40. Now, just a tiny hint into the mind of Peter. Peter, all through his epistles, he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Exodus and Leviticus once. He quotes Psalms and Proverbs twice, but Isaiah he's an Isaiah man. He quotes Isaiah six times in his brief epistles and he quotes him here. Now I want you to notice what Peter does. He's going to create a contrast for you because he's he's going to say the word of God. His second point is not only is the word of God involved in your regeneration, but the second thing is the word of God endures forever. And yes, you have too short a view of the word of God and its staying power. But first of all, Peter wants to make a comparison. He wants to compare the brevity of your human life with the enduring, staying power of the Bible. And so look what he says in verse 24. All flesh is as grass. All the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. Our lives are short, and you have a vested interest in not thinking about that ever. Our lives are short. I will bury somebody who's hearing me right now. I will bury folks in this congregation. It happens every year. You will attend the funeral of someone who's in this room. This is why Job can write in Job 14, man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. The psalmist writes in Psalm 39, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 103, after we're gone, we will be remembered no more. I want you to think about this in the brevity of your life. When you're gone, no one will remember you that long after. Within two generations of your death, you'll not be remembered. That's not just a a pompous statement. Within two generations of your death, you'll not be remembered. Think about that. Each one of you can remember back one generation. You know your parents' names and the place of their birth and the sound of their voice, and perhaps you can remember that second generation, your grandparents. I barely can, but then things get fuzzy. If you're asked about your grandparents' vocation or belief or preferences, your dead grandparents' You have to shrug your shoulders and say, I, I don't know. If you ask about the great events of their life, I, I don't really know. But Generation 3, your great-grandparents, rarely does anybody know any details about them or even where they're buried. And it's the same with you. After two generations, you will be forgotten. Death is going to happen to every single person in this room. Scripture says it's appointed unto men once to die. God has willed it to be so. Your parents, your children, your husband, your wife, your elders and deacons, it's going to happen. That's why Job cries out in Job chapter 30, I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. There are only two biblical exceptions in over 7,000 years of human history to this certainty. The first is Enoch. His saga is described in Genesis five. He walked with God and then God took him. And Elijah, whose story is told in Second Kings two, who the Lord was pleased to bring to heaven in a chariot of fire. And let me say this to you don't count on being an Enoch or an Elijah. C.S. Lewis tells the story of his teaching at Cambridge, and he was examining the concept of death in British literature. And so he turned to his students in his class. This was a graduate seminar. He turned to a young co-ed, and he said, well, what about you, young lady? What are your thoughts on death? And she said, somebody will think of a cure for it by the time I'm old like you. So let me tell you with authority, there is no cure. It is appointed. David writes the rhetorical question in Psalm 89, What man can live and not see death? And the reason why Peter brings up death is he's thinking about the most transient thing he can think of and compare it to the most enduring thing he can think of. Look at our text in verses 24 and 25. So when he thinks of the most transient thing he can think of, it's you. It's you and me. But then he wants to talk about the enduring nature of the scripture by contrast in verse 25. Now, I want to remind you of our doctrine of scripture. Whenever we talk about our view of the Bible, we typically assert four descriptive terms. I hope you are familiar with these, but let me remind you. When we talk about our doctrine of the Bible, we typically use four descriptive terms. We speak of the inerrancy of the Bible meaning that the Bible is completely accurate in its reporting of history and geology and science, inerrancy. There are no errors in the Scripture. The second term we use to describe the Bible is we speak of the inspiration of the Bible. This is the concept of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the, that God breathed out the very words of Scripture while incorporating the personalities of the human authors. We believe in verbal inspiration, meaning All the words of the Bible are given by God, not just general ideas. We believe in plenary inspiration, plenary meaning all, that all scripture is inspired. Inerrancy, inspiration. The third term we used to describe the Bible is is authority. Authority is broader than inerrancy. Inerrancy simply means the Bible is true, but authority says its commandments are binding, its promises must be believed. Authority means that every person on earth should come under the rule of the Bible. Scripture's authority doesn't depend on whether man cooperates with it or understands it. Its authority depends on the power and supremacy of its author. The fourth thing we say about the Bible, inerrancy, inspiration, authority, perspicuity. That speaks to the clarity of Scripture, meaning those things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture that not only the learned, but even the unlearned, using the ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. But there's a fifth truth that you must know about the Bible, and Peter teaches it here. Look at it in our text in verse 24 and 25. Rarely do we speak of this, but Peter wants to stress it. The enduring nature of the scriptures. The permanence of the Bible. One of the most edifying studies you can undertake is to study the preservation and transmission of the biblical text over thousands of years despite intense efforts to destroy it. You Remember what Jesus said in Luke 16? He says, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the word to fail. Jesus believed his words would spread around the world. He said in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And that's what we find today. God's Word has been preserved. It has endured. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 confirmed that we still have the exact same Old Testament as they did in Jesus' day. The survival of thousands, tens of thousands of New Testament manuscripts confirms that the New Testament writings were also providentially preserved. God's Word has survived despite intense efforts to destroy it. For instance, 175 years before Jesus was born, the king of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, ordered the Jews under the death penalty to destroy their scriptures, all copies, and worship the Greek gods. But Judas Maccabeus saved the books, led a revolt that won independence for the Jewish nation. Today, Jews celebrate this event at Hanukkah. Another example, the Roman emperor Diocletian ordered to have Christianity outlawed, its leaders killed, and all Bibles burned. He failed miserably. The next leader of the Roman Empire, Constantine, seeing what had happened to Diocletian, legalized Christianity and paid for dozens of new handwritten copies of the Bible to be distributed. Not only has the Bible been preserved, but it's rapidly being translated into every language. As of this morning, According to Wycliffe Bible Translators, 3,600 languages have access to at least a portion of the Bible, but it gets better. Wycliffe says now that currently over 2,800 more languages in 157 countries have active Bible translation projects. Look carefully at verse 24. I'm sure Peter couldn't have even fathomed this. When he says, The Word of God lives and abides forever, the Word of God is flourishing. It's running rapidly throughout the globe. Amid the shifting sands of culture, the Word of God is everlasting. David wrote this in Psalm 119 when he wrote, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in the heavens. Or our Old Testament reading this morning from Isaiah 40 The grass withers, flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Our world is rapidly dissolving. All things here will come to an end, but the word of God is everlasting. In fact, when we come to Second Peter chapter 3, Peter, we will hear him write that everything will be destroyed in judgment before it's renewed. But the word of God, it will be the one thing that it will remain enduring and unchanging. The word of God will stand beyond time. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so what we find out is that Lutheran motto, the word of the Lord endures forever, it should be put as graffiti everywhere because it's the theological truth. Now look at the last little phrase hanging off of our context in verse 25. Peter makes this very personal. He says, now this, this, this word that was used in your regeneration, this word that's enduring forever, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. And what Peter's doing is he brings this truth home. He's describing the normal Christian life as regularly hearing the preaching of the Bible. I say this often to challenge you. You have a choice every Sunday of your life, 52 times a year. Will I submit myself to the word of God 52 times a year or 104 times a year? Because there's some really good looking reruns of Bewitched and Gilligan's Island on, on Sunday evening. And I think I might rather, I think I might gain some profit from those because those are such enduring truths. And Carl's just going to be preaching out of the book of Joshua. Look at how Peter describes normal spiritual experience in verse 25. This is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. You see, God's people, they know how precious the written word is. They've heard it proclaimed and believed it and were saved. They hear it proclaimed after they're converted. And they implement it for family life and worship practices and business ethics. It's the means by which spiritual food is fed to them. And this is the case. I want you to think about how how transcendent the Bible is to people's circumstances. This morning, we could be in a church of 20 people or a church of 20,000 people. We could be in a city center church or a rural congregation. And these words of verse 25 would apply universally. This is what happens around the globe. Today, missionaries we have sent and support will engage in this act, the act listed in verse 25, explaining and applying the Bible. And they'll do it this week, and they'll do it the next. I think about Florian Viken, our dear brother, our missionary, who's in the wealthy, peaceful country of Switzerland. He's doing the exact same thing this morning that Octavius Delphils is doing in the violent, anarchy-ridden, very unsafe country of Haiti. But when it comes down to what their ministry is, they're doing the exact same thing. They're bringing the enduring word of God to their people. Or I think of our dear brother Francisco Cardosa, down deep in the slums of Recife, Brazil. Or Alonzo Ramirez high in the Andes Mountains of Peru doing the exact same thing. Because our missionaries have one principal task. It's the same task that we have. It's verse 25. is to preach and proclaim the enduring word of God. Let me make some applications to us. When it comes to the issue of authority, Rome, which allegedly had Peter, what a joke that is, as their first pope. Rome says hers is scripture and tradition and the pope but whenever any other source of authority is placed alongside scripture as of equal importance scripture always gets relegated to the background and that's what has happened in the roman catholic church and the charismatic movement with their new revelations the enduring written word has been relegated to the shadows remember remember that motto that that lutherans all over germany by the 1520s had written on their walls had on the warhorse helmets had written on their doors and on coins. The word of God endures forever. It's the word alone. We need to hear that over and over again. Our authority is the word of God. Why? Because it alone will last forever. Another application. We must recognize that the gospel is at stake in this matter. When we are evangelizing, The only power and authority we have is the proclamation of the Bible alone. Look at verse 23, (coughs) where we are told that the way God regenerates is always in conjunction using the word of God. I can promise you, you will have no effectiveness in evangelism if you don't use the Bible. It's the use of the Bible that God uses in regenerating sinners. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If Rome or Benny Hinn or anyone else proclaims new revelations or traditions or papal decrees, there is no saving power in their words. Only the scripture holds out the promises of salvation by faith in Christ alone. I have supreme confidence in the most simple preaching of the Bible. It alone has the power to transform families and individuals and cultures. Professional pickpocket came to the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in 1869 when Charles Spurgeon was preaching with the intent of stealing from the many thousands of members who were there. But he came under the sound of the preaching of the Bible. And he was converted that day. Later, when he met with the elders of the church to give his testimony of saving faith, and they asked him about this, he said simply, I came here to steal, but my heart was stolen from me by the word of God. In the British Islands in the 1600s, it was illegal to preach Reformed doctrine. Agents of the crown were sent to spy on certain preachers. They took notes with a, a plan to use these, to accuse these Puritan preachers that they might be punished. Yet on many occasions, the spies themselves were converted. Such is the power of the word of God that it woos and wins and transforms enemies into friends. So let me plead with you. Put your unbelieving friends and family under the power of what Peter calls, look at verse 23, the living word. This is how God will save them. It's in the living word that men hear of their sin and guilt and desperate danger and need for a Savior. It's in the living word that men hear of the only remedy, Jesus Christ. It's in the living word that they will hear how to appropriate this salvation by faith and repentance. By the way, since the scriptures are enduring, no wonder you are commanded to memorize them. With texts like, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might sin against thee. And you're commanded, as we have seen in our study of Joshua on Sunday evenings, you're commanded to meditate upon them. And knowing this truth, knowing that the word of God endures forever, a billion years from now, and that's not hyperbole, a billion years from now, the word of God will still be the Christian's delight. Because it alone endures. I would tell you by final way of application, nations and political movements will rise and fall. Ours is certainly now plummeting into degradation, and ours, and I'm not a prophet, I simply have eyes, and our nation will be forgotten within two or three generations. No nation can endure long that kills its infants by the millions and endorses pedophilia and aberrant sexuality. But the Bible will last. This nation will be forgotten quickly. But the Bible will last. Its gospel message will last. Its ethics will last. Luther was right to quote 1 Peter 1 and make this the motto of the Protestant Reformation. The word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have put us in possession of the most precious possible gift we could have, your holy, inherent, authoritative, enduring word. And Lord, we confess our shame that we've not valued it as we should. And so, Lord, we pray now that in deep repentance, we would renew our zeal for learning, memorizing, meditating upon, knowing, proclaiming your word. And Lord, we pray for us corporately as a church that we would ever be a congregation that loves the proclamation of the word and understands its enduring nature. Lord, bless us as we cling to your word.